Hello, readers. Rick Pitino is a 2013 inductee into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame, a two-time NCAA national champ in basketball, first with Kentucky and then Louisville, and he's the only coach in the history of the sport to take three different schools to the Final Four. He's also the author of a book titled Patino, My Story, Inside the Biggest Recruiting Scandal in NCAA History in 40 Years of Coaching Basketball. Rick, thanks for the time. How you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Rick, why is now the right time for this book? Well, at the end of my career, uh, I wrote this book, and while writing it, I wasn't sure what my future would be uh, really undecided. And while I was writing it, I really felt that this was time to end um, a 40-year 40 40 year career and, and the book would be closure to that career. And uh, I'm happy I wrote it. It's the truth, which is the most important thing. It's a story that spans 40 decades. It's a story that talks about the shoe companies, talks about the places I've been, the people I've met, the motivating stories that I've come across, and then, of course, the two scandals that uh, that... I, I witnessed it firsthand, and uh, whether it's a the last one, whether it's a scandal or not, still remains to be seen. Uh, I'm not sure what the FBI and the state of New York has in mind, but so far it's not much of a scandal. I got to say, you present a pretty compelling argument on the two different things that have affected you over the last five years or so, and we'll certainly get to that in a little bit. But I did want to get into a, a little bit of the background story because. I knew you were at Providence, of course. I knew some of the other stops along the way, including your professional stops with the Knicks and Celtics, uh, but I didn't realize uh, some of the connections that you possessed going all the way back to really your teenage years as a basketball player, as somebody who was participating in camps and uh, helping coach in camps as well. But I also didn't realize how big of an influence Hubie Brown was in your career. Uh, For those who don't know, tell people just what Hubie Brown means to you. Well, U.B. Brown was way ahead of his time, as you, as you hear so much in the NBA about analytics, analytics. Well, U.B. Brown was way ahead of his time in terms of using analytics. He was a big believer in every edge you could possibly get using analytics. And he was a very strong coach, very similar to a Bob Knight in terms of presence and, and commanded a certain audience around him. His players had to play hard or... There would be a price to pay, but he was an innovator. He was a someone who created a style that was very much a winning style, a demanding style, and I learned an awful lot. It was like being in the, the library about basketball for two years and came away with about 10 years of knowledge because of him. Those types of people are certainly important in life. What would you consider to be your first big break in the sport of basketball as far as coaching is concerned? Well, probably when Jim Beheim hired me, it was his first year as a head coach. Although he's gotten to be known as a zone coach back then, he wanted somebody to help him teach man-to-man defense and hired me in his first year as a head coach. And we played about 50% man-to-man back then. And, and that was a really nice break because it led to becoming a head coach at 24 years of age at Boston University. 
And uh, you also tell an interesting story about how you almost took the Penn State job. It was offered up by Joe Paterno. I don't want to spoil that story. I want to encourage people to go out and buy this book because it has some very entertaining stories in it. One that I do want you to relate to uh, the listeners, though, right now is a, a funny one you tell from your first year as head coach at Providence in 1985. What happened at the Big East coaches meeting involving McGregor basketballs, Raleigh Massimino, Jim Beheim, and P.J. Carlissimo? Well, I was new. Again, I came as UB Brown's assistant. Providence College, since the inception of the Big East, I believe it was like seven years, either Seton Hall or Providence College shared the cellar, the bottom, uh, or Providence College was by itself. So when I got to the meeting, John Thompson had a, back then the money wasn't very big. John Thompson had a void deal that paid him $10,000, and he was running the meeting. The year before, everybody got $2,500, for using McGregor basketball. McGregor decided that they only wanted three schools, St. John's, Syracuse, and Villanova. And Rolly Massimino coached that perfect game against Georgetown to win the national championship. And Rolly worked out a deal where the rest of the coaches would get 3500 each. So when I got there, P.J. and Bayheim said, look, Rolly really has deep respect for the professional ranks, and you're coming in from the pros when Rolly brings up that three of us are going to get 12500 and the rest 3500 you raise your hand and say, look, Rolly, we're all in this together. Congratulations <laughs> on winning the championship, but we all should get the same $7,500. <laughs> so I said, well, why me, guys? I'm, I'm new to the group, and I work for Jim. And the reason I fell for this story was Jim was the one that was going to make twelve five. So why would he want to make 7500 So I believed he was telling the truth. So when Rolly got up and pontificated on you know, that he struck a deal for the rest of the coaches that McGregor didn't want the rest, which was true. And when he was done, I raised my hand. He said, yeah, Rick, what's up? I said, Rolly, look, congratulations on winning the championship. It's awesome. But we're all in this together, even though some of us haven't done well of late. We're all in this together. Why don't we all get 7,500 and split as equal partners? Well, he went off on me like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> Who the hell do you think you are? You young whippersnapper. And he obviously his words in there and, I got very upset. We almost went across the table at each other. Look at Beheim and PJ in there. Their head is in their lap. They're laughing hysterically. And then the next day, Dave Gavitt put us in a, it was 90 degrees. I believe it was Puerto Rico. It was like 90, 95 degrees on a golf course. And Dave Gavitt put me in the golf cart with Rowley. And I walked all 18 holes. I was so excited. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. That is awesome. And Coach, you mentioned earlier, you know, part of the reason for the timing of this book was uh, it sort of feels like the culmination of your coaching career. I'm just curious, you know, as part of the reason to write this book, kind of get to get your bearings on all that's happened to you over the years, and also, you know, your thoughts on a, on a future for you. Do you plan on perhaps being a part of the media, still being involved in basketball? I'm curious what's next for you after this book. You know, I wrote a motivational book a few years ago called One Day Contract. And everything in, in your life is based on one day, that you have a contract based on one day to get the most out of your abilities, to be as positive as you can be, to be as organized as you can be. Well, for the first time in 41 years, I wake up in the morning at 5.30 a.m., put my gym shorts on, getting ready to go to the office, stop to get some coffee, and now suddenly I wake up at 5.30, I put my gym shorts on, and, and I have nothing to do. So I have to go by that book, One Day Contract. So each day, I'm not sure what the future's going to bring for me. So I just try to handle each day, tie up. I really do believe, now that I've been out of work for the first time in 40 years, that idleness is the devil's workshop, that you have to tie up your day, whether it's fun things, whether it's reading, whether it's doing things that 
from a chore standpoint or visiting friends, you have to tie up your day because you don't necessarily think of great things. So that's what I've been doing. And now I, I have a podcast speaking a lot about professional and college basketball. Billy Donovan's my first guest. Nice. But I am going to have people like Derek Jeter, and I'm working on President Obama, and I want to deal a lot with motivation, motivation for not only athletes, but for people generally in life who may have gone through some adversity like I have gone through to help them get through some difficult times. Love that. Love to hear that, Coach. Looking forward to that podcast. And I'm curious, you know, it kind of seems like what happened to you at Louisville, look, there's, there's been scandals in college basketball over the course of time, and especially a lot over the past few years. It kind of seems like what happened to you stuck more than it does for, for other coaches, right? Sometimes scandal just kind of rolls off other coaches or other programs. Uh, do, you, do you sort of feel that way, that uh, for some reason you got caught up in this and, and your job got lost because of this? Uh, are you following what I'm saying here? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the one thing I'm happy about is that Jim Laranega got an extension because he was mentioned in the same complaint that I was mentioned by the Southern District of New York. Now, understand, the reason I was mentioned in that Southern District of New York, because, hey, I'm not on a wall. There's not a shred of evidence that I did anything wrong. And then, see, more than anything else is you have to question. They tried to hide my identity by saying I'm Coach 2. But then they said Coach 2 coaches at a university with 22,100 students. So someone from fifth grade could figure out who that is. So that being said, you know, I, I do have some bitterness toward the Southern District of New York. Why mentioning my name without any evidence at all? Some scam artist with false bravado would say, oh, yeah, we'll go to Rick Pitino. He'll get us more. And the one thing I tell you guys, we all have our personal faults, and I'll admit to mine very quickly. But the one thing I haven't done in my 40-something years, my 30-plus years as a head coach, is I've never used a single inducement to get a player to come play for me. I didn't recruit somebody who had to bargain to get a player. I went after what I call PhDs, passionate, hungry, and driven people, guys like Terry Rogier, Donovan Mitchell, Gorky Zhang, Peyton Siva, guys that weren't ranked in the top 50 basketball players but were hungry enough to get there. So I made my living off players like that, and I've never cheated to get a basketball player. That doesn't mean I don't have personal faults. We all do. But as far as cheating in the game, never cheated the game, never cheated in the game. So I wanted to make that perfectly clear. Why the Southern District of New York did that is obvious. They wanted publicity. The U.S. attorney gets up and says, we, this is a big scandal. And four years later, after the FBI had FISA warrants, FBI giving money to assistant coaches trying to go after players and so on. And what did they come away with? Well, there's a trial coming in October. There's four assistant coaches, a couple of Adidas representatives, and a few scam artists. No head coaches. Now, maybe there's more on the horizon that I haven't seen. But I know in speaking for me, I had nothing to do with any of that. My assistant coach allegedly walked in a hotel room. He told me, saw an envelope on the table, and he got out of there. He did not get indicted. He did not take anything. He left as soon as he saw that envelope on the table. He didn't know who these people were in that room, what they were doing there, and he was smart enough to get out of that room. You write in the prologue of this book that the amount of cheating 50 years ago in college basketball is the same as today. Do you really believe that? I do. Now, I can say this. I don't have 100% knowledge of it, but let's just take the Atlantic Coast Conference. I don't know one coach in one program in the ACC that I would venture breaks the rules even a little bit. I don't know one person. So I just know that conference. A lot of people think there's much more cheating going on in football than basketball. Well, 
Only one agent broke this story, a guy by the name of Andy Miller out of New Jersey. He made all these notes, same with the money he's given throughout all the years. But this was all started with this guy, Marty Blazer, who had five or six indictments against him. And he told the prosecutors, look, I can deliver you college coaches. Well, four years later, after everything is said and done, this is who, this is who they have. This is what they have. I personally think this is a job for the NCAA, not for the FBI. I think with opioid addictions, with political corruption, inside trading on Wall Street, terrorism, I think that's what the FBI should be used for, not for arresting assistant coaches trying to bribe people to go to their school. Yeah, the problem with that, though, Rick, is that the NCAA has proven itself to be so incompetent and worthless over the years. One, it's not as big of an operation as a lot of people assume, but two... They get it wrong so much of the time when they actually do try to wield their sway on, a, on an issue. You're right there. See, the NCAA is – problem with the NCAA is that they have a, they have a police force of like three or four people to, to end corruption, so to speak. And I believe it's less than 10 percent because I hear the same people out there, and it's only gossip. Uh, like in my book, they got a hold of my text messages, and somebody uh, – texted me who's not in basketball said i heard DePaul's giving um two hundred thousand dollars a offer to the bowen family i went to my assistant coach and said how about this text look at this guy and he said coach that's nonsense i said why do you say that he said because the kid never considered DePaul, and obviously if they did offer it he turned it down wasn't interested so DePaul wasn't why would anybody try to ruin DePaul's image when in fact he wasn't even in the picture with them so I think the cheating is, is less than 10%, except what was 30 years ago was a $500 deal. Today is a $100,000 deal, mm. all because of one reason. The shoe companies weren't in play 30 years ago, and they are in play now. Who do you think that 10% consists of? When you say who, what, what do you mean? You said less than 10% of the industry cheats. The assumption among most, myself included, is that it's really the bigger schools, the ones that are getting five-star after five-star player year after year that are doing most of the cheating. In your mind, though, who does that 10% consist of? You see, that I don't believe, and I'll tell you why. So let's take the biggest. The biggest, obviously, right now would be Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina. They're probably, when you think of college basketball today, Villanova. You think of those schools. They don't have to cheat. See, where the cheating goes on is not by the coaches. The cheating goes on at the lowest level, the grassroots level. The kids become freshmen and sophomores. They're high school superstars. You know that the agents aren't waiting to April of a young man declaring for the pros before they contact the family. So what do they do? They send these runners out there working for agents for low salaries to get involved with uncles, aunts, grandparents, anything they can to get in with a young superstar. And then by the time he's choosing a college, they already have a foot in the door. So it's the agent business, it's the shoe companies, it's the lower levels that are really causing the problem. The Krzyzewskis of the world, the Calipari's of the world, the Jay Wrights of the world, they don't have to cheat because they're getting the best players because of all the money and exposure with the first round draft choice. They don't have to cheat. It's the schools that are somewhat not involved in that that break the rules somewhat. And you hear the same names over and over and over, but they never get caught. And that's because they, they're professional at what they do. Coach, just a couple more questions for you. 
Uh, I'm curious your thoughts on the new rule changes instigated by the NCAA, the the one where players who don't get drafted in the NBA draft, if they leave early, they can go back to school. And also elite high school prospects now being allowed to have official relationships with agents. Uh, Curious your thoughts on those rule changes from the NC2A. I still think it's naive by the NCAA. So they're allowing kids to get agents. And then if they don't get drafted, they could come back. So do you not think that the agents are going to give something to the kids and their families at that point in time? The NCAA, when there's a problem, they put in more regulations and more rules. They really need to go the opposite way. They need to lighten up with the rules and let kids, if kids are going to be able to do commercials, if kids, sort of the Olympic process, if kids are going to be able to make money while they're in college, because I'll tell you what I say in the book, the Golden Goose is going to be somewhat damaged, and the Golden Goose is March Madness of college basketball. So in 2020, if the NBA follows through on saying there's no more one-and-dones, kids can go from high school. So the one-and-dones do not get a college education, let's face it. When a kid's one and done and he goes to Duke, he's not getting the typical Duke education that everybody else is getting. He's taking some online courses, taking some courses, and six months later, he's focused in on the NBA and going pro. Where the education comes in is the high school kids. They've got to, to, to be eligible to go to Duke. They've got to take 16 core requirements. They've got to have, maintain a certain grade point average. So the kids that weren't really paying attention at the early ages now have to pay attention to their grades. Well, now suddenly the NBA is going to say no more, and the kids are going to say, you know what, I'm going right to the pros because they all overrate their abilities. I'm going right to the pros, and if I don't make the pros, I'll go to the G League. The heck with going to school. The heck with getting my core requirements. And it's really going to have a negative effect on the education of high school kids that play sports. So I think that less regulations, less rules, I just think it's, it's so rampant right now because anytime you have a billion-dollar industry with shoe companies, so shoe companies now pay Louisville $178 million. They pay Kentucky $250 million. They pay Duke $250 million. They pay Stanford $200 million. Notre Dame $300 million. Anytime you're talking about that amount of money, at the lower level, there's going to be, hey, we want some great players to go to these places so we can sign them to a professional contract when they become pros. And that's where it all comes in right now. And I don't have the answers how to cure that system, to tell you the truth. Yeah, but you offer up some pretty good suggestions on things, and that includes really uh, not allowing the shoe companies to hold so much influence with grassroots basketball, the AAU levels of the world. And uh, you also uh, talk about the AAU coaches not uh, having nearly as much influence on these kids as well. Now, one figure that you talk about in this book is Sam Gilbert, who, of course, to a lot of people, was John Wooden's bag man back at UCLA, uh, back in the Wizards' heyday. Uh, He made sure his Bruins players lived a more comfortable life financially than they may have otherwise. Now, myself and my co-host believe it's ridiculous that so many student-athletes are pawns in this multi-billion dollar business that is college football and basketball, with plenty of adults exchanging money in the process. Because you... Rick Patino are smart enough to see that a lot of the kids you coached came from poor socioeconomic situations and were trying to make something more of themselves. Did you ever have a Sam Gilbert-like figure at your disposal to help your college players live a, a slightly more comfortable life? I would never let that happen. I don't want to say I'm, I'm so puritanical. I, I don't believe in any form of cheating with basketball. Uh, if I had to, I mock, when I play golf, I mock my ball right behind it, not on the side, and I don't touch the ball. <laughs> I'm a firm believer in the rules. Now, by that, I said to the NCAA, look, you have a problem here, and I, just what we've been talking about. I said to so you, what you need to do is get the high school coaches back in the picture. 
Because when I go in on a recruit today, little coaches like E with A, B, C, and D. They, they, they're not even influencing the young man's decision. It's AAU coaches. It's, it's family members. And here's an interesting thing. I said to three parents I've come across that I've been friendly with throughout the years. I said, why would you take something? I said, let's look at the Bowen situation. Why would you take something and risk your son's reputation? And here was their answer. Coach, if my child, I see all these great players go to these schools. The schools make millions of dollars. And as you said to me, Louisville is the number one revenue producer in college basketball 12 straight years. So why would we not take something very small, our son's going to help make millions of dollars at university so we can travel to the games, pay for our hotel, pay for our food to see our son play. Where the school's making millions of dollars, we can't even afford to get on a plane and go see our son play. So we think that's unfair, and that's why parents take things so they can go see their son play and they can prosper a little bit. So I see their point. Now, Sam Gilbert, just to go on record, John Wooden's, as I say in the book, is one of my three favorite coaches of all time. A humble man a brilliant man, a poet, uh, a great husband, great family man. John went to the AD, Morgan, I think it was not J.P. Morgan, but P.J. Morgan, I think it was, and said to him, look, I have a problem with Sam getting involved with my players. The AD said, John, you pay attention to coaching. I'll handle Sam. And then John didn't pay attention to it anymore and won all those championships. And in Seth Davis's book, he goes on and on and on how Sam was an agent, a friend, took care of the guy's and so on. And John Wooden didn't deal with him. The, the AD said, I'll deal with him. You pay attention to coaching. So a lot of people like Bob Knight have held it against John Wooden for all these years because of that. So God rest John's soul. I'm not going to say he's a cheat. He took it to his AD. And as it turned out in the book, it says that Sam Gilbert was somewhat of a semi-mobster. Yeah. The players loved him, believed in him, but they also believed in Coach Wooden. So I'm a believer in getting everything back to the high schools, get everything back to where the summers are run by the NCAA. But I, I accuse the NCAA of being a little lazy because their people came up to me uh, about four years ago. I told them to split the summer into four different recruitment periods for the college coaches. Have high school coaches from all the regions invite the top 100 from four different regions in, let the college coaches come in just to evaluate that, you educate the parents, bring them in on the rules, and now you've taken the colleges away from AAU basketball, and the AAU can run their system. You don't want to hurt them. They can have their system. But as far as evaluating, the NCAA runs that. Well, the guy said, well, that's going to take a lot of work. I said, yes, it's also going to clean up a big mess. So he agreed with me but didn't like the work part. Wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. Now, I don't want to end on a sour note necessarily because your career is defined by a whole lot more than just the last couple of years. So I wanted to ask you about something where you were really a trailblazer. In 1990, you actually hired the first female coach in D1 men's hoops history, Bernadette Locke. Why do you think basketball is so far out in front of the other men's sports when it comes to including women in its coaching ranks? There was a scandal at Kentucky. I was brought in to clean it up by C.M. Newton. And by the way, in the book, I've worked for three unbelievable athletic directors. Lou Lamarillo, the hockey titan, who's now running the Islanders, the late C.M. Newton, who was an incredible man, and Tom Jurich at Louisville. I hired Bernadette because I wanted somebody who could get a lot of really, really positive publicity and was going to handle the academics, was going to be involved in our program, but would bring something to the program that they didn't have. 
she was a gem, very similar to what Popovich has done with his assistant coach now on the bench. She sat on the bench in the famous Duke game with Christian Leitner, and she added a great deal to our program. But the reason I think it, you know, it's it's almost like why aren't certain women playing on the men's tour in tennis or men's tour in golf? It has nothing to do with physical ability. It has to do with that's that's their game. Where but men have infiltrated women's basketball. Mm-hmm. It stands to reason that women can coach men's basketball, and I really believe that. I, I, there's no question in my mind Bernadette could have coached at, at the collegiate level, and there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Pat Summit could have coached uh, men's basketball. I think they just choose not to, but there will come a day where women will decide. You know what? I'm pretty tired. This coach making four million, and I'm I'm making three hundred thousand or five hundred thousand. I'm going to coach a men's basketball team, and some AD is going to give her a shot, and she'll do quite well. Also, you coached the Knicks for a couple years before you took that Kentucky job. For a city that loves its basketball, the pro team stinks pretty consistently. Do you think James Dolan is part of the problem, and what will it take for the Knicks to shake this stigma and become a consistent contender? You know, everybody blames James Dolan. James Dolan's this. James Dolan's that. What? You know, a lot of the New York people just love to jump on him. They used to jump on Steinbrenner until he started winning all those championships. So I'm not one to do that. I, I, James Dolan doesn't draft the player. James Dolan doesn't coach the player. My opinion is the Knicks are a little unlucky. Like last year, I tried to talk to them about drafting Donovan Mitchell, and hmm. they went with, uh, I have a tough time saying his name, and hopefully he'll be a good basketball player. But they are on the right track right now. They hired... This guy, Fisdale, who I'm a big fan of. Perzingis was a terrific draft choice. They paid Phil Jackson like $15 million. It didn't work out with him. I think New York, because of the scene in New York, they're very impatient. Like Philadelphia 76ers have done it the smart way. They're very patient. <laughs> they said, trust the process <laughs> uh, by Embiid. And now they're on the threshold of big things because they, they went through a process. Where the, In New York, they don't want to go through that process. They want it now. So the problem with the Knicks, even though they're very good, it's almost like the ACC. Even though, like, Georgia Tech is is doing a good job and Virginia Tech, those coaches are doing a good job, no matter how well they recruit, they're not going to recruit as well as North Carolina, Syracuse, and Duke, and Louisville. So it's the same way with the Knicks. So right now they're making strides, but how do they catch Philly, Boston, and even Washington for that matter? So it's difficult. They've got, a, they've got a major hurdle to try and get to where those other teams are. Rick, when you've taken your final breath and uh, you're no longer a part of this world, how do you want people to remember you? Well, more important, as I said earlier, I had 30 assistant coaches move on to be head coaches. And somebody said, well, you've got to be responsible for these two guys that didn't do the right things. And my answer to them is I'm responsible for every move that happens in a basketball program in terms of strategy. But I mentored every assistant coach the same way. Get in early, stay late, give every ounce of perspiration you have to the student-athlete to make them the best possible player and person they could be. And I stand by that. All 30 assistants I've had, I've mentored them all the same way. And I believe in that. I I don't believe in anything other than that. So my legacy is going to be, number one, my children. Number two, the athletes I've coached, not only the ones in the NBA, but the ones that are out there doing some great things in life. And then the last one is all the assistant coaches that are out there leading from major universities to the NBA. And I was talking to 76ers. My captain 
when I was 26 years of age at BU was Brett Brown, <laughs> who's with the 76ers. Billy Donovan is the Thunder played for me. Rick Carlisle of the Mavericks played for me with the Knicks. So I have so many people out there that I, I can turn on the TV, even though I, I missed the game terribly. There doesn't go a, a day go by where there's not a period of sadness that I'm not in my gym shorts out there coaching. But on the other hand, I look out there and I say, Mick Cronin's my guy there at Cincinnati, Kevin Willard at Seton Hall, Menzi at Las Vegas, Massiello in Manhattan. Um, I look out there and see so many of my guys that I follow them religiously and I, I live vicariously through them. That's awesome. Coach, how's your golf game nowadays? The interesting thing, I used to travel to my golf course I belonged to down in Miami and I say to my friends, you know, you guys are a bunch of scam artists. I said, you play all winter, you play all year, and then I come back in, in June, and you're all the same handicap, and some of you go up. And their response is, oh, we don't get any better just because we play all the time. I said, that's impossible. So last year, I was playing four times a week, and I went from a 12 handicap to a 14. So if you have a bad jump shot and your elbow's out and, and you don't shoot at a, what I call a big rim with high arc, it's not going in very much. And when you have a golf swing like mine, you're not getting much better. <laughs> well, uh, Rick, I hope you uh, you find your way back into basketball in some capacity. You are one of the great minds in the history of the sport. Even if it's something like uh, a movie that you had a cameo in, Blue Chips, where Nick Nolte at the very end of the movie, he's like, you know what, forget about this. I'm just going go to go uh, to, to the local gym, the local blacktop, find some kids that are playing basketball and help them out a little bit here and there. But regardless, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed the book and I encourage everybody to go out and get it now. Patino, my story, and he is Rick Patino. Coach, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Coach. Guys, thanks for having me. Take care of yourself.